the sake of time, I'll jump right in. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. You can follow along on the screen, on your phone, in your printed Bible, whatever you have available to you today. Let's read Ephesians 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so here's where we're at in the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians really has two parts. It has the the first couple of chapters, which Paul lays out a lot of theology. He's explaining the gospel. He's explaining, he's talking about his relationship to the Ephesian believers. If you've been with us for a while, you might remember this is a letter written to a church that he helped plant in a town called Ephesus. That's where the name Ephesians come from. It's written to the Ephesians. And so he's, he's laying out the, the core theology of the gospel message that he wants to remind them of. And then for the rest of the book, which we're going to transition to after today, for the rest of the book, it gets super practical. So he lays the foundation of theology, which is the way we should always do it in the church. Everything that we, we do practically should be rooted in what we believe theologically, what we know to be true from Scripture. And so he builds this foundation of the gospel, and then on that foundation he's going to build, here's how we should live out our lives as Christians. And it's wonderfully practical, and it's full of great information. We're going to talk about husbands and wives. We're going to talk about children in relationship to their parents. We're going to be talking about spiritual battles and warfare. We're going to talk about unity. We're going to talk about our tongues and how we use the words that come out of our mouths. It's wonderfully practical. But all of that is rooted in the theology that he lays out, the message of the gospel that he proclaims to them. So here we are in 14 through 21 of chapter 3, and this is the end end of the theology section. And so moving forward, we'll enter into some real practical uh, sermons in this series. And actually next week, we're going to pause because I have some some friends that I want to introduce you to who are preparing to be missionaries. And I think that Redemption Church is being called to participate in that with them. And so I'm going to give them some time next week. They're going to tell you their story and, and where God is taking them in their ministry and, uh, and then we'll look at the scriptures a little bit about, and, and just think through what he's calling us to do as a church in terms of his mission globally. And so we'll take a little break from Ephesians next week. But when we come back into it, we're going to get right into all the practical stuff. And so today what I want to do, because this is really Paul talking about the way he prays for the Ephesian church. And this is the second time he's done this. Uh, I want to focus in on verses 17, 18, and 19. He says in the middle of verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I, got to, I pray regularly for my children to know God's love. 
If you're not sure what to pray for somebody else, pray that they would know God's love. Because if you know God's love, it changes everything else. Knowing God's love can lead to all of the other things that you might be interested in praying for them about. But it starts with knowing God's love. Without knowing God's love, we don't have the proper relationship with him. And so we see the example here of Paul is praying. Now that they've been rooted and firmly established in love, that they may be able to comprehend the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, being filled with all the fullness of God. And so what I want to do today is I want to, I want to hopefully, in a, in, a, in a way, be an answer to Paul's prayer, that we would know God's love. So I want to take the next few minutes, and I want to talk about God's love. If we want to know God's love, then we need to look at how the Bible reveals his love. And so I've got a couple of real simple things that I want to say about God's love. If you have a handout and you're following along, you can start filling in the blanks. The first one is this. God's love is faithful. God's love is faithful. Again and again in the Bible, we are reminded that God's love is faithful. His love is described as being faithful. And sometimes in other translations, it's translated steadfast. It's an immovable love. It's a love that's always there. It's a love that always comes through. It's a love that does not disappoint nor let us down. It is a love that we can rely on. That's God's love. It's faithful. The psalmist in Psalm 36, verses 5 through 7 said, Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals, how priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. At the time this was written, nobody conceived of even going into into the clouds or into space and beyond that. And so the psalmist is saying, as, as high as we could conceivably ever go, and then beyond that, your love is there. Your faithful love reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness into the clouds. Your righteousness, it's like the highest mountains. Your judgment's like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve your people. And so we know that wherever we go, God's love is going to be there because he's faithful. This is the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of God's faithful love to the people that he reveals himself to. We see his faithfulness to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua. Israel's entire history is a story of God's faithful love. That's the whole Old Testament. It's God being, it's not about faithful people. If you read the Old Testament, they're not faithful people. Occasionally they do the right things, some of them. But the real hero of the story throughout the entire Bible is God. He is the one who is faithful. He's the one who doesn't change. He is the one who can be counted on. He displays his faithful love over and over and over and over and over again. And so he does today in our lives. He shows his faithfulness. He shows his faithfulness in a variety of ways. This does not mean that everything goes the way we hope it will go. But even when things go in directions we wish they wouldn't have, we can trust that God's love is faithful. 
we can trust that whatever he's doing with our lives, it's for our good and for his glory. Because he's faithful. He's proven himself again and again and again. Yet, even in, the, even in light of all of that, we doubt his faithfulness. We get into a tight spot, things get a, li- a little bit difficult, or sometimes things get a lot difficult, and we start to doubt and question his faithfulness. We merely need to hang on. We merely need to hang in there long enough and we can trust that God's love will come through in faithful ways again. He proves himself all the time. And so we believe that God's love is faithful. It can be counted on. That's what faithfulness means. It won't let you down. He will be there. You can depend on him. Psalm 36 is one of these places where some of the other translations go with faith, or steadfast instead of faithfulness. Lord, your steadfast love reaches to the heavens. I like that translation better. There aren't too many places uh, where, where I think, boy, I wish the CSB would have translated that differently because I love this translation. I think it's a fantastic translation for today. But I like that word steadfast. He's immovable. He can't be defeated. We can count on him. Whether it's steadfast or faithful, we know that God's love can be relied on. The next thing is that God's love is displayed in Jesus. God's love is faithful and God's love is displayed in Jesus. Love must be demonstrated in some way. It has to be expressed. That's what I mean when, it, when I say God's love is displayed in Jesus. You know, uh, uh, was, um, the guy who wrote the five love languages, Gary, uh, Gary Chapman. Uh, if you've never read the book, The Five Love Languages, it really is its a must-read. At the, at the very least, you, you need to get some, a hold of some sort of summary on it and understand the concept. Because I think this guy with great insight into human behavior has laid out five different ways that people generally exp- express love to the people in their lives. And uh, he, he calls them love languages. He says, and everybody has one or two primary love languages. It's the way that you express love to the people around you. The problem is, is that the people around you don't very often speak the same love language. And so you're expressing love and they're not hearing it. They're not receiving it as love. It's incredibly important in marriage to understand this. Kim and I have very different love languages. We do not speak the same language when it comes to expressing our love. That is, presents quite a few challenges, but it's just helpful to be aware of it. And then when I, when in our calmer moments, when we can step back and say, okay, I can see where we're doing different things, but trying to communicate the same thing. And so this idea of love must be demonstrated. God's love language is Jesus. He demonstrates or he displays, he makes known his love in Jesus Christ. That's how, he's, that's how he reveals his love to us. 1 John 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 10 says that God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's God's love language. Jesus. He sends Jesus. He makes a sacrifice. He, he gives up something that, that cost him greatly to express his love. 
You know, I was raised, I was raised in a generation where, where I think men weren't, generally speaking, all of that vocal in their love. It was the kind of the, the generation of, well, you know what, I provide for you, I go to work, I work hard, I give you everything that you need, and, and, and you should know that I love you. And sometimes I think there were a lot of marriages that were strained by that cultural reality that, that men weren't taught to express and to communicate love in various ways, but the, there was just a whole generation of men who said, well, I gave you all of this. I did all of this. And there was a whole generation of women who were saying, well, I don't feel, I don't, I don't receive that as love because we're speaking different languages. And so we need, to, we need to be able to interpret. Well, if we want to know how God shows his love, this is how he does it. He expresses his love by sending his son Jesus that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32 says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? What Paul is doing in Romans 8 he's, is he's taking what he has seen God do, what he knows to be true, that God offered up Jesus, and from that he is inferring that if God offered his son, he must love us. And if he loves us enough to do that, then there's nothing he wouldn't do for us. That's the right conclusion to come to. If God loves us that much, then we can be confident in his faithful love that there is absolutely nothing he would not do for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says it even a little more clearly. It says, for while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though a good person perhaps, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you have ever asked yourself the question, how do I know God loves me? How can I be sure that God loves me? This is the answer the Bible gives us. He proves his own love for us. That means you. He proves his love for you. You are included in the us here. He proves his own love for you and that while you were still a sinner, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's an interesting point that Paul makes here. He says, rarely will someone die for a just person. You know, we, 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 watch, we watch movies where there's a story played out where somebody gives their life out of their love for somebody else. But I can't think of any examples. I'm not saying there aren't any out there. Perhaps you can remind me of one. But I can't think of any examples of a movie where someone lays down their life for their enemies. Those are so rare, those types of stories that even, even in the make-believe world of Hollywood were we're void of examples of people who would give their life for someone who, who is against them, for their enemy. And this is the point that Paul is making. He says, rarely will someone even die for somebody they love. That's rare enough. How much rarer is it that somebody would die for their own enemies? Jesus loves in this way. God proves his own love for us. That in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love being displayed in Jesus. 
His love is superior to everybody else's love. His love surpasses any other love that you have ever known because he loves his enemies. He is willing to die for those who have rebelled against him. That's us. Those who have sinned against him. And he does it, I love that the way Paul says it there in Romans 5, while we were still sinners. Before you had any opportunity to earn Jesus' love, he died for you. In fact, for all of us, it was before we even existed. But God, knowing that we would exist and knowing that we would sin against him, knowing that from the day we were born, we would be in rebellion against him, that we would, for at least a period of time, live as his enemies before any of that even happened. Nonetheless, before we had the opportunity to, to show him that we were worth dying for, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, think of Jesus on the cross as the, as the people around him mock him and ridicule him. What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how God's love is displayed. He doesn't love you because you have the ability to clean yourself up. He doesn't love you because you're one day going to return that love to him. He loves you before all of that. He loves you before you do anything lovable in his eyes. Picture that. Before you have done anything lovable in his eyes, he loves you. That's, that's a different kind of love than we're used to. You won't find that from other human beings. You won't find people who love you without you doing anything to earn it. You won't find people who love you without doing anything to deserve it. But God proves his own love for us that, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is faithful. God's love is displayed in Jesus. Next, God's love leads to eternal life. The end result of God's love for some is eternal life. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that. It's not enough to know that God gave his only Son. We need to know why he gave his only Son. Why does he give his only Son? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God gives his son so that, so that we might believe and not perish, but have eternal life. God's love leads us to eternal life. And it's the only thing that can. Only God's love can lead you to eternal life. Your love of yourself, your parents' love for you, your, your religious behavior, the, the, the good that you have, have done throughout your life. None of that can lead you to eternal life. Only God's love. Only God's love has the power to lead us to eternal life. Because it was God's love that sent Jesus to die in your place on the cross so that you might believe in him. Not perish, but have eternal life. When we were looking at chapter 2 of of. Uh, Ephesians, we saw these verses, 1 through 5, where Paul said, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. And then verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. That's what I mean when I say God's love leads to eternal life. It's the only thing that can get us there. It's the only means by which we can get to eternal life. We cannot earn it. We cannot work for it. We don't ever deserve it. It's his love that gets us there. God's love leads us to eternal life. What a love that he displays in Jesus, that he would come and die for our sins while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were still against him, that we might believe and have eternal life. But then the next thing that you see on the handout is important to note. God's love requires a response. God's love requires a response. His love is faithful. His love is displayed in Jesus. And his love does lead to eternal life. And that kind of love requires a response. Just think if, if I fell in love with Kim. We've been together, this, we'll be celebrating 15 years of, of marriage. So um, just think if 15 years ago I fell in love with her and I expressed that love to her. I made known my love to her. But she just continued on living her life without any response to that love. I mean, first of all, think of all the stuff she'd have missed out on. <laughs> I mean, just think if, 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 if I expressed my love but there was no response from her, what would that mean for our relationship? Well, it wouldn't exist. I mean, you know, if I persisted, you know, I, I could be some sort of stalker or something and continue to pursue her with a love that she's not responding to. But love requires a response in order for relationship to happen. A one-sided love does not create a relationship. And so it is true of God's love. It requires a response. And because she responded, here we are, 15 years of living the dream. She has everything any woman ever wanted. It's just going unbelievably well. She's never disappointed. She never looks at me and thinks, this guy is miserable to be around. And, and just look at the way God has blessed her. It's incredible. But God's love requires us to respond. If we don't respond to his love, then the relationship doesn't exist. Not a saving relationship anyhow. Understand how important this is. Because I think there's a lot of people that understand that God is love and that he has demonstrated and displayed his love in Jesus Christ. And that God's love leads to eternal life. But then they stop there and they don't respond. They hear the gospel. Perhaps they understand the gospel to some degree. They may even believe that the gospel is true. But they have not personally responded to him. Without that response, there is no relationship. Without that relationship, God's love has not brought you to eternal life. God's love requires a response. It demands a response. It deserves a response. 
Galatians 2, verse 20 says, I have been, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is, this is how Paul lives out this relationship. The life that I live, I live by faith. Believing in the gospel, believing in Jesus, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You need to believe those two things are true of Jesus, that he loved you and that he gave himself for you. You need to respond to that. That is how he has demonstrated his love for you. And you must accept that as true and respond by putting your trust and your faith in him. That's what it means to believe. Biblical belief is to put your trust in it. It's not just to believe that it's true. It's not just to believe that it happened, but it's to rely on it. To throw yourself at the feet of the cross and say, I needed you to do that and I believe you did it for me. In John 16, 27, Jesus told his followers, he said, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I don't think Jesus is saying that if you don't believe the gospel, God doesn't love you. I think it's true that God does love all people. But to enter into that relationship, there must be a response. He says, because you have loved me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, because you've responded to his love. Because you have loved him back by loving me and have believed that I came from God. He says, you've believed what has happened in front of you. You have believed the message that I've shared with you. Because of that, the Father loves you. Because of that, you've entered into that relationship. The one that leads to eternal life. The one that is displayed by Jesus Christ going to the cross. God's love requires a response. It was awesome to see this weekend. Four of our students, after hearing the message of the gospel, say, I believe that and I want Jesus to be my savior. It was amazing, and as we broke out into small groups after that, some of them were saying, you know what, I, I heard this message before, I've, I, I grew, many of them grew up going to church, they said, but, but something happened here, like, I believe it now, I get it, I believe that's for me. Four of our, four of our youth students put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation this weekend. Maybe some of, their, some of the adults here need to do the same. Maybe some of the other students who are here who, who, who weren't a part of that retreat, or maybe some of the young adults, maybe some people in this room need to respond today. If that's you, I want to invite you into the greatest relationship that you will ever have, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a saving relationship with the God who died for you. While you were still a sinner. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And I thought it was appropriate to follow up to this sermon today with communion because if God displayed his love in Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and that kind of love requires a response, then the way he has given us to respond first is to believe, to trust in the gospel, to put our faith in Jesus Christ, but also to remember Believers are called to remember what Jesus had done. Believers are called to remember that Jesus gave his, himself, he gave his body, he gave his blood, he gave his life on our behalf. He laid down his life for us. 
that we might live. And so the response that I'm calling you today is one of two things. If you have not trusted in Jesus to be your Savior, if you have not asked him to be your Savior and trusted in him for salvation, I want to encourage you to do that today. On November 3rd, 2019, make this the day that your relationship with Jesus Christ changes for eternity and you receive the gift of eternal life he has for you. If you've already done that, then all of us together, I'm calling us to remember. To remember the way that God has displayed his love by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. I want to ask the worship team to come up. We're going, to take a, we're going to give you a little bit of time here to prepare emotionally and spiritually. You know, the Bible calls us when we take communion to, to reflect, to, to not just take this hastily, to not just enter into communion without examining our own hearts, but to take a moment and to just think about where we're at with the Lord. And if you're here today and you're like, you know what, I've never received Jesus, but this makes sense to me. I believe that Jesus died for me because he loves me, then, then that's response number one. I want to invite you into that response today, and I'll pray with you in just a minute. If you've already done that, I want, I want you to take the next few minutes and just examine your heart. Where do you find sin that you need to repent of? Where do you find sin that you need to turn from? Well, let me tell you what Jesus has done for that sin. He took it upon himself. Every sin that you have committed, even the ones you're most ashamed of, Jesus took upon himself. He took your sin upon his own body and he suffered for you. He paid the price for you so that you could be forgiven and so that in your relationship with him, you could be free of the guilt and the shame and the burden of carrying your own sin. And so as we take a few minutes to prepare for communion, I just want you to take your sin to him. Say, Jesus, here's what I have to offer you, my brokenness, my sinfulness. I believe that what you did on the cross was for me. Would you wash me again today? Remind me that you have paid the price for all of my sin. Take the guilt and shame that comes with it and give me your grace and your mercy. So would you just close your eyes as the worship team begins to play? Is there anybody here who wants to respond to Jesus for salvation? Who wants to ask Jesus to be their Savior? To take away the penalty of all their sin? And to grant them eternal life? If that's you, would you just slip up your hand so that I can know who I'm praying with today? You want to receive Jesus today to be your Savior. If that's you, I want to encourage you to pray along with me. You can, you can improvise, use your own words. You can repeat my words, uh, whatever. I just want to lead you to Jesus in a moment of prayer here together. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you died for sinners like me. I believe that you paid the price for my sin on the cross. I ask you to forgive me to be my savior to give me eternal life and teach me to live 
life the way that you created me to. I thank you and I rejoice in that gift. In Jesus' name. Now as we keep our eyes closed, as we prepare for communion, I just want to encourage the rest of you to, to pray along as I pray for the rest of us who are already believers. Asking God to reveal to our hearts sin that we need to repent of and assuring us of the effectiveness of what Jesus did on the cross. Father, we are sinners through and through. Each day we confirm that. And so God, I pray as we reflect and as we look into our own hearts, uh, we're sure to find things that are keeping us from enjoying your love and enjoying your grace and your mercy more. And so I pray that you would reveal those things. God, that you would give us the grace to let go of them, to hand them over to you, trusting that what you have done by sending your son to die on the cross is sufficient. Trusting that what Jesus did by giving his body and pouring out his blood covered all of our sin so that we can be guiltless and free of shame before you. God, draw us closer to you this morning as we reflect. In Jesus' name. Well, let me give you a little instruction. If uh, you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to participate in communion today. If you're not sure that you are, you're not ready to make that decision today, there's no shame in letting uh, the communion elements just go by. Um, what you'll receive is a little cup that has the wafer in the top uh, and the juice in the bottom. Uh, if you want, you can open that, but please don't take the communion elements. We'll take them together once everybody has had time to receive them.
my wafer's hiding. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord Jesus by taking the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together as well. Jesus, we remember you. What you've done for us, how you loved us, how your love was displayed for us through your death on the cross and through your resurrection from the grave through giving eternal life to everyone who believes and trusts in you. We thank you for this gift of salvation. We praise you and we worship you. In 